Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. Uh, in 1978, uh, my family moved over from uh, Bradenton on the West Coast over to Palm Beach County. Uh, my dad was uh, in corporate management with Nabisco, and he was uh, m- moved over here to be a part of what was happening over here in that company. And uh, everybody moved over uh, in my family in that space except my older brother. Uh, my other bro- bro- older brother stayed behind. And he moved in with us later in the year, uh, in the fall of the year. And we all settled in as a family and we found a church home and we began to sort of do life, you know, on the west, uh, uh, on the east coast here. And, uh, and, uh, it was customary for my dad, uh, when they connected with a Sunday school class, which interestingly now is our east campus. Uh, which is interesting there. When my dad would, uh, they would go to their Sunday school class, he would take cookies. Because he was like Nabisco. That's like what you did, you know? And uh, any time uh, that we would forget, like we'd jump in the car and go to church and forget, uh, my dad would just turn the car around and whip up in the driveway and, you know, send one of the boys out to get the cookies and get back in the car and off we would go. So on uh, this uh, particular Sunday, we were on the way to church and that's exactly what happened. Uh, We forgot the cookies. And we had already gotten out to Lake Worth Road where we lived and he had turned around and came back and we pulled in the driveway and he did a strange thing. Uh, We put the car uh, in, he put the car in park, turned the car off and all of us went inside to get the cookies. And I was first and when I came into the house, I walked into the kitchen and my older brother who was not feeling well uh, was in the kitchen and he was pouring a glass of orange juice. And He took a glass out of the cupboard, uh, poured the juice, put the lid on the bottle, and he turned and went to put the juice back into the refrigerator. And when he did, he looked at me. And the moment he looked at me, his eyes rolled back into his head and he fell on the ground in what we learned later was what they call a grand mall seizure. And my older brother, I was watching my older brother writhe around on the floor. I'd never seen anything like this. I was 16 years old. It scared me to death. And I picked my brother up and sort of cradled him in my arms while he is foaming at the mouth and and having this seizure. And then in this moment that I'll never, ever forget, his body went totally and completely limp. And I thought he died. And I wish I could tell you that I you know, manifested all this bravery in that moment, but I want to tell you exactly what I did. It's kind of hard to tell you. I kicked him off of me, and I ran out of the house. And I was at the end of our street when the paramedics arrived and packaged my brother up and took him to what was then, how many of you remember this, Doctor's Hospital on 10th Avenue. Scared me to death. And for nine days, uh, my brother hovered in between life and death. And they ran tests on my brother. They could not figure out what it was. Was it drug activity? What was we were later to learn? 
He had a head injury and it was scar tissue. We didn't know at the time. And uh, what I remember about that moment is several things. One thing I remember is that experience I've just shared. The second thing I remember is that I memorized, I can see it just like it was yesterday, the emergency room or the uh, waiting room outside the ICU unit. Some of you have been through experiences like that. I have that emblazoned in my head to this day. But this church that we had connected with uh, wrapped their arms around my parents and people every day from their Sunday school class came and sat with them and prayed with them and they prayed for my brother's healing. And one afternoon, um, a, a nurse who was on coming on to her shift in ICU, uh, who was a part of our church family, I didn't know her, my parents didn't know her, she came early and some of the others who were gathered with my parents from her Sunday school class, she said, I want, she felt a strong need. She said, I want you to pray for me. I'm going to go in and I'm going to lay hands on your brother or your son and pray for him. And I remember this circle and I just, you know, remember these prayers and I remember this moment and she left that experience and she went in through those automatic doors that we were allowed to go in only every four hours, right? And she went in and she gently laid her hand on my brother to, in her words, carry the prayers from the ICU unit into, or waiting room into that unit. And the minute she gently touched my brother's chest, he opened his eyes and he said, what am I doing in here? And as quickly as that, you know, disaster of an experience happened, it was over. And I live on the residue of that experience and how that connected some important issues concerning my faith to this day. And the reason I share that story with you is simply to tell you, all of us, if we think long enough and hard enough, we have some story like that. You can change the name, you can change some of the scenarios around it, but all of us have a story that we can point to either in our lives or in the life of someone else that we know that has a lot of similar components to it. And... Today, we're going to look at a story in Scripture that has the same components, and it's going to unearth for us exactly the next element that I want us to think about in terms of the study of miracles that we're looking at right now. And so if you have your notes, you may want to take them out. We are uh, in week three of what we're calling a series called Miracles. And we are studying through the New Testament the miracles of Jesus. But here's what we're doing if you're a guest. We're pushing the, the, the series out past the edges of just studying the miracles of Jesus and into the circumference of also looking at the issues of faith and belief and miracles in general. And this is what we're doing in this series. And um, the verse we've chosen as our theme verse for this series is one sentence broken into two verses buried in the middle of a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to a band of churches formed off the coast of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, which is a little group of churches he started called the Ephesian churches. 
And buried into this little uh, book, that uh, letter that he wrote them, is, is one sentence broken into two verses, and this is the, the verse. It says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, immeasurably more, than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And if you're taking notes, I want you to circle in your notes these phrases. First of all, there's this first phrase. God is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. If you're taking notes, I'd want you to circle the words more and ask and imagine. Because that's an important thing. This is is the frame of reference that Paul the Apostle had come to believe. He had come to this understanding. The second phrase you'll notice, he says this, according to his power at work in us. Not our power, not our ability, not our knowledge. God's power at work in us. And then he says this third phrase. He says, to him, this God, to God be the glory in the church. Now, here's what I want to tell you about that phrase. Often, when Jesus does miracles in the New Testament, the, 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 the biblical writers telling the story of those miracles will often use the word glory in the miracle. In other words, God, when he does miracles through Jesus, watch this, was displaying his glory. Okay? Now think about that. A lot of times that's said even in the miraculous account, or if Paul or one of the other biblical writers are referring to a miracle, they will often use that word. Here's Paul doing that. He says to God, to this God, be glory in the church. Here's what Paul is literally saying. Do we still today find that kind of glory in the church of Jesus Christ? So in other words, when we come together, Is there a sense that God is breaking strongholds, that God is doing miraculous things? Is there a sense whenever his church comes together that faith is rising, that God is here, God is powerful, God is alive or not? Here's literally what we're asking in this series. Can we believe what Paul says, or is this just, to put it bluntly, a lot of religious hogwash? This is a question. And I have to tell you something. I I think there's a tremendous amount at stake in the way that you and I answer this question. First of all, I think this. There's a tremendous amount at stake for how you orient your faith and your belief in God based on what you believe about what Paul is saying. Is it true or not? And secondly, I would tell you this. There's a tremendous amount at stake for all of your family and friends that you would like to see come to faith in Christ. Because you know what? I was reading recently, you've probably heard this, one of the number one reasons many of our family and friends who don't embrace the gospel, who don't embrace Jesus the way we embrace uh, Jesus, is because they see such tremendous disparity between what we say we believe and what we actually believe believe. There's a big difference. I remember when this church, when we were building this building, and uh, many of you know these 
these stories are kind of hallmark stories of our church. But, but I remember we, had, uh, we went through an, an incredible amount of difficulty to try to, to get the approval process to build this building. And all the gray hair in my head is a result of that experience. And I remember one night we set a, we set a caution tape uh, in the circumference of this building right here among all the trees and we had a big prayer night some of y'all remember that and we just came out here and we just fell on our knees out here in the in the ant beds and in the and all of that and we just said god if we just this needs to happen this has gone on long enough and we wrote the names of people we'd like to see come to faith in christ on some rocks and we collected the rocks and when we poured the foundation of this building we put the rocks with the names of people we want to see become followers of Jesus poured into the foundation of this building. This building has been built on prayer. And so here's an interesting dynamic that we're looking at. I just want to remind everybody in this series, one of the things I love about our church is that we go right at these questions. We go right at these subjects, really right at it. My goal in this series is I want to rattle the cage of faith in your life. And I want to push on some things and see if some things move. And if we're going to do this, we're going to have to have a conversation about miracles and all of its mystery and all of its wonder and all of its weirdness and all of the question marks that go along the way around this. And so what we're doing is we're, 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 we're looking for clues to God's greatness in all of these stories. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to read to you a, a, a miracle story. Interestingly, it's the second miracle story of Jesus that he performs in the Gospels. And there's all this connective tissue with what we've learned so far. So it's a perfect story for us to take the next step. It happens in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. Here's the story as John records it. He says, After the two days uh, Jesus left for Galilee... Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's the first story we looked at two weeks ago. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the festival, uh, Passover festival, for they had also been there. And once more, he visited Cana of Galilee, where he had turned water to wine. That's what we looked at last week. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum, which is, for those of you that want to know, it's about 20 miles away from where this is actually taking place. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people, he says, unless you people, Jesus said, see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And so the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son, he will live. And so the man took Jesus at his word, and he departed. And while he was still on his way, servants met him with the news that his boy was now living. And when he inquired as to the time as to when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at around one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. God, would you increase our faith? 
Uh, would you come uh, in this space, and for those who are listening online, and would you give us an ability in this place to courageously step forward, to learn better who you are, and to increase the faith both individually and in this room around you? This we pray, asking in the name of Jesus, and everyone said. So here's some interesting things about this, if you're taking notes. This is the second time Jesus comes to Cana. Cana is where Jesus did his first miracle at the request of his mother. And uh, it's a perfect miracle Jesus did the first time in Cana for seekers. This guy's a seeker. And so turning water to wine, uh, I'm sure, got a lot of attention. It's okay to laugh about that, you know. And so as a result of that, here's the interesting thing. This guy had heard that. And so when Jesus comes the second time into Cana, he is going to go make his way to see Jesus. Now, here's some interesting things I want you to think about this. He's a royal official, uh, scholars believe, uh, in, in the core group, in the inner circle for Herod Antipas, who is related to the Herod when Jesus was born. We remember him from the story. He was referred to as a nobleman. In fact, the Greek word of that is basilikos, which communicates the idea that he was of a high-ranking Roman official. And here's what I want you to think about. It's interesting. In fact, some who would read this, some religious traditions would go, well, here's a miracle to begin with. A high-ranking Roman official would never, ever talk to an itinerant Jewish rabbi. That would never, ever happen. And this begins to underscore what I want us to think about this afternoon or this morning because uh, actually this guy has authority over Jesus, but in this moment as a result of what he's heard, he's coming to the only place he could go to, think to go to, to find the help he needs. And when he does that, it's sort of interesting. It unearths exactly the kind of, the next kind of thing I want us to think about uh, in terms of how to increase our faith and see more of a move of God in our lives. And it deals with the subject of desperation. Here's a question I want to ask you. You ever been desperate? You ever been desperate? Uh, We live in a culture that uh, I think is exhibiting record levels of desperation. And we are like rabbits scurrying around in our culture trying to find the latest thing to help take the anxiety off, to do whatever we feel like it needs to do. We are a desperate, desperate culture. I looked up the, uh, the, the definition of desperation And the definition of desperation is this. It's a state of despair which often shows up resulting in rash or extreme behavior. Isn't that true? And we see it in verse 47. I want you to to notice it. Let's just don't glance over it. Here's verse 47. When this man heard, this high-ranking Roman official, learned that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him, there it is, to come and heal his son who was close to death. So, so we've been looking, we've been studying mir- the miracles of Jesus, and here's what we've learned so far. There's a bit of a pattern that emerges. Now, watch this if you're taking notes. It's not prescriptive. We are not trying to figure out how the magician does the card trick so that we could, 
you know, lay it up to do the card trick. That's not what we're talking about in this room. And if you're a guest, you're going, "Uh uh-oh, it's about to get weird. It's not going to get weird. We're not talking about that. But we are saying this. There are some things that we notice that are similar in all these stories. The first one is this. All the miracle stories, we said it two weeks ago, we don't really know when the miracle happens in the story. But we do know this. Somewhere in the process of obedience to what Jesus asks, the miracle shows up. We don't know, we don't know uh, in the story of the water to wine, like I said, we don't know if, it, if the water turned to wine when the servants went to the well or when they wa- brought the jars back or when the wine taster touched the ladle to the, to the bottle or to his lips or when it happened. But somewhere in the process of them doing what Jesus asked, water turned to wine. Somewhere in the process of doing what Jesus asked in this story, the boy got well. We just don't know. When did it happen? We don't know. Somewhere in the process of obedience. Here's another thing that we see often in miracles. A sense of asking with boldness. It's asking with boldness. And we looked at that last week. Mary, Mary goes to Jesus, and it's a social disgrace. I mean, the groom's family, they're running out of wine. She doesn't even ask him. She's so bold, she just says, hey, they're out of wine. Do your thing. Okay? And here we notice, and, and, and here's the third one that I want us to key on. It's desperation. But watch this, everyone. It's not just desperation. It's desperation aimed in the right direction, which is different. We live in a culture that's so desperate. I, I was thinking about this in a couple of, in a weird way. Uh, this past week, I had a busy afternoon, one afternoon full of appointments, and I often will get out of the office, and I just go and meet with folks and, and do what, what, what God has called me to do, and I, I had pulled off this property, and I was heading east. Now, what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the speed limit out here? I feel the desperation in the room right now. <laughs> I just feel it. So the speed limit is 30 miles an hour. And I pulled out, and I didn't see anybody, and I, I pulled out, and almost as quickly as I, I aimed my truck east, and I'm driving east, this work van pulls up behind me going like 100 miles an hour. And my wife knows, that's just like, ugh, I don't, I don't really do well with that. My humanity tends to come out in that moment. Just going to admit that as your pastor. And this guy was like, he was like right on my bumper. And he is like going back and forth and trying to figure out a way to, to go around. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to slam on my brakes or not. And I'm just trying to, I'm just getting all tensed up about this. And then all of a sudden, here's what this guy does. He goes, whips out around me and pulls out in front of me. Every time that happens, don't you go, wouldn't it be cool? You know what I'm going to say? Wouldn't it be cool if there was an officer there? And can I tell you, when he goes whipping out, there are two cars coming this way. Guess who's the second car coming from the opposite direction? Boom. I mean, the lights come on. He turns around. He pulls this guy over. I drive by 30 miles an hour, beep the horn, wave at him. And then prayed prayers of repentance. (laughs) There's just like this desperation that's going on in our culture. And here's what I want to tell you. God 
God can work with desperation. Some of you are here right now, and you have things in your life, and they're, and they're broken, and you feel desperate. Can I just normalize your... We've all felt that way. When my, when my brother was thrashing around on the floor, I'm going to tell you, I felt desperate. And some of us are here, and we've just got some stuff going on in our lives, and, and we feel desperate about that. I, want to, I just want to normalize room. God gets desperation, but here's the thing. you got to turn it in the right way. you got to aim it in the right way. This is a story to me. You'll notice in this story, Jesus did not uh, belittle or ignore this person's desperation. His willingness to step out of social protocol, his willingness to be made a fool, his willingness to do whatever he needed to do. I was reading this week, author Jessica Legrone, who's a friend of mine, says this, desperation often means we have come to the end of ourselves. We are out of resources. We are out of places to turn. And it is the power of desperation stewarded well that moves us to action, gives us the boldness to do whatever it is that needs to be done, to go the last mile, to sacrifice the last bit of energy, to find the help that we need. And when we're desperate, It's the perfect place to find God. But now let me tell you the the question mark I have there. Here's the question mark. Again, I don't know, and we're going right at these subjects. I don't know why it is as a pastor and as a communicator that, that sometimes it's that desperation that I see in people that drives them to the foot of Jesus where real life change happens. And other times, I see desperation that prevents people from ever finding the hope and the power in Christ they can find. I don't know why that is. Complete, absolute mystery to me. The only thing I can think of that I've seen, that I've come closest to, is the disposition we may have in our heart in that moment when we're desperate. I've been praying about this and thinking about it and reading about it, and I've just been asking the Lord, you know, why, why, why is it that when some of us are desperate, we don't, we don't seem to turn to you? What is going on? And I thought of some different things around this, and, and, and one is certainly our skepticism, and some of us are in the room and we're skeptics. And a skeptic is a person, quite honestly, and this may be some of you or some of you who are listening to me online, a skeptic is a person, really I think of it this way, who suspends judgment, they never commit, they just keep options open forever. It's a bit of a manifestation, I think, of a form of pride. I remember a stupid story, it's not true, I remember a story about uh, the French Revolution when French Revolution was putting people to the guillotine and they, they brought this guy before and put, him, put his head in the stocks, put him in the guillotine and they said, any, 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 last, any last words? And the guy says, I believe 
that God will save me. And the guillotine comes down, it stops right before it chops his head off, and they go, it's a miracle, and they get him out. They bring the next guy in, put him in there, and they go, any last words? And the guy goes, I believe God will save me. Guillotine comes down, stops right before it chops his head off. They go, it's a miracle, they let him out. Third guy comes, he's a skeptic. They put him in the guillotine, and they say, any last words? And he said, yeah, I'd really like to say, I know what your problem is. This thing is wired wrong, and if you would just correct that. You get my point? Skeptics keep the options open forever. And here's what I want to remind you. To not commit, watch this, is to commit. Right? To not commit, if you go long enough, it's to commit. And that's the challenge of the skeptics. I, I remember there's a skeptic in the Bible. We remember him. In fact, his name, you know what his name is? What do we call him? Doubting Thomas, right? And you know, here's the interesting thing. I always love to trick people. That's not in the Bible, people. We call him Doubting Thomas, but his name is not Doubting Thomas. Do you know, do you know what his name was? His name was Didymus. And Didymus, scholars think, was first of all, he was probably a twin, because Didymus means twin. But I was reading a scholar recently who said this. The other interesting thing to think about, though, with Didymus is because in biblical times, names meant something. And every time he shows up in the Bible, he always manifests doubt. And one translation for the word Didymus means to be of double mind. Some of us can't ever get our desperation tuned in the right way toward God because we're just a skeptic. Can I tell you one worse? It's the cynic. If, if the skeptic is always asking questions but never committing, the cynic has all the answers and all they do is offer solutions. And the reason I think this is worse, and I always like to say this as a, as a professionally religious person, um, one of the greatest infections loose in the church is cynicism. We got enough knowledge to be dangerous. And the cynic is the one who's got God all figured out, that, that puts God in a box, and they look at every little thing, and they always just kind of have a negative twist around it. I want to tell you some of the most dangerous people you could ever hang around are the people who are cynics. Because a cynic person will ne a cynical person will never open their heart to be willing to risk enough to let God really manifest his presence and his power in their life. One of the things I love about this royal official do you notice that desperation turned the right way? He was willing to do whatever he needed to do. I bet in that crowd, people were going, oh my gosh. I mean, that's a royal official. What, what is he? He's, he's coming to Jesus? Like, I mean, what, like, what is going on? You get desperate enough, 
you aim that in the right way, it's, it's not a prescriptive pattern, but I tell you what, it's a pattern. But I can go one worse than the cynic. And it's the rebel. You know what the rebel is? The rebel is the person who just simply refuses. Who just drives a stake in the ground, says, no way. No way. And some of you are here right now and you don't, you don't even believe anything I'm saying, but you've gone way past skeptic, way past cynic. And if you were really honest with yourself, here's what you would say. You're a rebel. You're just not going to do it. And what I find is really challenging around this, and I want to come back to it, it's this statement that Jesus makes that is, that is really bewildering. I don't know if it confused you the first time I read it. I want to show it to you and we'll be done. It's very uncharacteristic. Wouldn't you say of God? It's almost like an admonition. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Here's the problem with that, though. There are too many other stories in Scripture where Jesus is saying and doing exactly the opposite of this. And have you ever thought about this? Why Why would he say that and then still do the miracle. Find that weird? I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why he still did the miracle. Because the way you're reading that is, norm, is, is really not what's being said there. In the Greek language, really how it comes through is this. We have a poor translation. It's really saying this. It's not that unless you see a sign, you won't believe. Jesus is actually saying this. He's saying you think you need a sign to believe. And here's what he's saying. Kind of opens a window of hope. He's saying, no, you don't. See, we live, in a, we live in a culture, and this is the other pattern you see in miracles, where we say this, I'll believe if I see it. But in the spiritual world, it kind of works like this. You believe, and then you see it. It's completely opposite. So here's my challenge to you this week as we continue to go forward. Tune your desperation into the right pitch and the right angle. Go right to God with what is making you desperate and ask Him boldly to show up right in the midst of that and then do exactly what he asks you to do. Lord, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you are not put off by desperate people. But you invite us by the way you lived your life You invite us to turn our desperation 
in the right direction. Help us, we pray, in the name of Christ our Lord. And everyone said, Amen. Stand together, we're going to sing. Lord, I thank you that that is the truth of Holy Scripture, and I pray that for any of us uh, in this room or online that just feel, Lord, differently, that feel like we have wonder, we have doubt that you're there, that you care, that you're not going to fail us, I pray that you would show up and manifest your power, that your love, that, that you would draw those of us in this space closer to you. Let us open our eyes to see what you're doing in our lives and how you long to know us and care for us. Use this series to do that, we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Go in his peace and in his blessing. We'll see you next weekend.